Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, folks, we are back. It has been two very long weeks since the end of Wimbledon 2022. Just long enough, hopefully, for you to miss us. Not miss tennis, of course, because tennis never stops. But maybe miss us, unless you're a friend of the podcast, in which case we have produced three shows over the course of the last couple of weeks. There's a Wimbledon review show featuring voice notes from a lot of the usual suspects and also a little bonus voice note from the one and only Sue Barker which I think is worth becoming a friend of the tennis podcast for in itself and we've done two Q&A shows as well David is on holiday true to his word not on this podcast true to his word he said uh, you can do a podcast if you like but I'm not going to be on it (laughs) so here we are in King's Cross in a lovely brasserie that is why you're hearing ambience and we are joined by Charlie Eccleshare formerly of the Telegraph now of the Athletic and the Wimbledon podcast we've got we've got a rival podcaster on that what are we doing welcome Charlie hello how are you doing good to be back we're not even your first podcast of the day Charlie no I know but you know it's been uh, it's been too long it's been a long a long old wait so I'm looking forward to this this is a very Eccleshare part of town though isn't it because um, we're King's Cross not far from St Pancras where we got the Eurostar back from Paris a few weeks ago and we were we were shouted out on the streets and it was none other than Charlie's mum. Yeah my mum is a big fan of the pod I think she was quite starstruck seeing you all. <laughs> she, she saw David first. She didn't catch us at our best Charlie we'd just been Eurostarred. It was, wasn't that the tube strike day as well? Yep. The end of a Grand Slam. Yep, we'd we'd spent a lot of time at the Gardenor. Anyway, it was it was it was lovely to see your mum. Um, and yeah, I got I got off the tube at the wrong stop today, so I actually walked past that very spot <laughs> where we had an echo share encounter. Charlie, great to have you. Um, it's it's let's be honest, it's weird the post Wimbledon period, isn't it? I mean. Ten, it's not the only weird period in the tennis calendar, and this is something we touched upon in one of our Q&A shows, you know, the sort of lack of coherent overall narrative in the tennis mm. season. And look, there are, there are good little stories and results that we'll be talking about today, but it's bitty, isn't it? Yeah, it is weird, and I, I found that discussion interesting about the post-Wimbledon clay and how 
weird that feels. I mean, I'm slightly conflicted on it because you see that a moment, and we'll get onto it, but you see players winning these tournaments and clearly it means lows to them. So a little bit of me is like, who am I to kind of impose that judgment? But on the other hand, I'm going to. And it does feel, it does feel a bit odd. And I think you're right, there is... I very much divide the tennis year into those, you know, the surfaces and all of that sort of thing. So when they come out of sequence like now, I, I think that this just feels like such a... There's something a bit clinical about it. It's just there for, you know, it's there for points, whereas I think there is something quite nice about that feeling that, yes, Monte Carlo and Rome mean things in their own right, but they're also this sort of... You're building up to something, and the results really matter because it's the sort of portent for what might happen at Roland Garros. Whereas now these results they kind of only mean the tournament they're in at the moment. I don't think, you know, we're going to take huge learnings from this for the rest of the year. Yeah, and as a podcast, what what we love to do is to take a fact exactly. and, and project it very far <laughs> into the future and speculate about what its meaning might be. What does it mean that Casper Ruud has won three back-to-back clay court 250s? Well, actually, it ended up meaning that Casper Ruud had a great, has had a great 2022 so far, doesn't it? So... Maybe some of the some of the winners from this this year's mini clay court mm. swing will end up having a a great twenty twenty three clay court season. I don't know. I mean, it's not a stretch to suggest that Carlos Alcaraz will have a great twenty twenty three clay court season. He lost in the Hamburg final yesterday to Lorenzo Musetti, his fellow next next Jenner. I don't know why I've said that. I absolutely, I, I hate that title, but there we go. And Mercedes' reaction was one of that. You know, he looked absolutely overcome with joy. I mean, partly because it was such an emotional, drawn-out, fraught match. But, you know, there's that cliche of football, isn't it? You know, try telling X set of fans that the FA Cup doesn't matter. I guess, you know, yesterday, try telling Lorenzo Mazzetti that this tournament doesn't matter. You know, he clearly was... Uh, overcome with emotion um, and it was a, you know, a thrilling match in its own right and I think the way he won was significant wasn't it because some of Lorenzo Mazzetti's most noteworthy moments really have been losses from a winning position mm. you know I'm thinking of course again, about retiring for the fans against Djokovic at Roland Garros and then this year against Tsitsipas he lost from two sets up again and here against Alcaraz he's got match points in that second set he loses serve for it didn't he serve for it he loses that second set and I was expecting him to be really flat in the third set I was expecting a 6-2 Carlos Mm. Alcaraz and the fact that he won even though he lost that winning position initially feels quite significant for him yeah, because we're still figuring out who Lorenzo Mazzetti is, aren't we? We think we know who Carlos Alcaraz is. It could still change, but there's still quite a lot more to learn about Lorenzo Mazzetti. And I feel like yesterday might just have changed the course of where I thought I was going um, with my assessment of who he's going to be as a tennis player. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you guys that. I mean, obviously, Mazzetti had that amazing performance the Djokovic one that I think really caught the eye of the wider tennis community and then maybe I know the, the, the year since hasn't been quite so explosive but I mean do you do you see him as someone who has a, has a really bright future or is he going to sort of be just a little bit below that? I think to me at the moment he's got a very bright future on clay like right. I think he's really good on, on clay he's, he's got such a pretty game hasn't he but he can 
he can package it together into winning tennis on clay moves well he's got nice variety his topspin forehand I think works much better on the clay so I see him as a threat on that surface but that probably goes back to what we're talking about at the start of this podcast he's going to be playing on clay now for another eight or nine months in terms of the next well the remainder of this year I think it means nothing other than that it was his first title yeah that is significant I almost he could be getting dug out by Nick Kyrgios for winning clay court tournaments (laughs) you know he could reach those heady heights if he he plays his card right that's what he's (laughs) That's what he's dreaming dream. of right now. But it, it, it does, it, I think it's great for the tournament that it, it makes it more significant. Like for Alcaraz, it would have been mm. another 250, right? But for Mazzetti, that will forever be his first ever title. And I think that's yeah. what you saw in, you know, in that victory celebration mm. yesterday. I, the assessment that the, the fork in the road that I, I was on my way down with Mazzetti was style over substance and a potential question mark over fangs, which huh. I think remains. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because <laughs> despite of <laughs> himself, he did manage to win that that match and that tournament. I mean, he, he really struggled to serve it out um, earlier on in the week against Rusevori. He, I think he needed seven match points there. He was he let a double break slip in, in another match. It, it was it was a struggle getting over the finish line in kind of every match, and I suppose it's good that he did still manage to win the title. But I do think, yes, this is a big step. But I think those question marks probably do still remain about his about his fangs. Can we talk double bounces? Mm. 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 The most resolvable problem in tennis, <laughs> and there aren't many of those. There's a lot of problems, but not many of them are resolvable. We could all solve this tomorrow if, if tennis would only just agree um, that it's, it's worthy of, of being solved. Situation, Lorenzo Mazzetti is serving for the match in second set. Everybody, I think, has a feeling of, you know, this could be, this could be touch and go for Mazzetti trying to serve, serve this out. He goes love 15 down. There's then an extraordinary point. This is sort of entering the period of the match where both players are playing great at the same time there's lots of really stylish eye-catching cat and mouse type rallies and this was one of them where Lorenzo Mazzetti is scrambling towards the net to to chase down an Alcaraz drop shot and he very clearly doesn't doesn't get there the 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 ball bounced twice usually I am terrible at calling double bounces I don't trust my judgment on them at all and this one felt pretty clear to me I think Lorenzo Mazzetti must have known Mm. I think from what I can gather you do just know in that situation Um, and it wasn't called and I I don't particularly blame the umpire or really taught for that I mean she's not infallible and she's not got the video verification materials that we have to, to confirm that it was indeed a double bound so we're all sitting there at home watching this replay of an extremely clear double bounce on what felt like an extremely crucial point at the time as it happens Alcaraz did go on to break that game but you know that that wouldn't necessarily have happened um and it's just ludicrous that that isn't made available to the officials surely I mean they've trialed it haven't they the next gen mm. finals I remember and it, was and it worked successful. really well yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, and yeah they actually did get to use it I mean so you know tennis lends it we've seen with Hawkeye and these, it lends itself it's a, it's a stop start sport anyway so it lends itself to it and if and you know they've crossed that Rubicon 
aeons ago. I mean, you know, we've had that for what 15, 15 plus years. So it does it does seem odd that you, if it's there, you wouldn't just use that that bit of technology. It's hardly advanced. I mean, it's and and it doesn't take long. Yeah, it's almost like in in football, VAR coming in before. Um, Goal line technology. Goal line technology. Yeah. yeah like the, the big Rubicon is the VAR, is the hall cap, is the hall exactly. This is. Yeah. This is so around the edges. Yeah. So we're all agreed then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just Charles don't see Alcross a downside. You know, that it's not going to delay the game in any meaningful no. way. No. You've got Hawkeye anyway. It's just a, an extension of that. Um, I, I guess that, yeah, the positive in this case, it didn't matter, mm. I suppose. It, it might have fed into the um, pretty aggressive celebration from Alcaraz upon winning yeah. the second set via double fault from Rossetti. They ha- I should say, you know, at the end there was a mm. lovely embrace between Alcaraz. I don't think there's any lasting beef. They've travelled to Umag together. Have they? Mm. Oh, sort of um, like when Medvedev, Tsitsipas and Kyrgios <laughs> took that private jet from Washington to Montreal together. Uh, Kyrgios, the peacemaker. Um, I mean, yeah, that, it does I think raise... it's fine, but there was... It felt like there was a bit of needle in that, you know, finger to the ear yeah. celebration from Alcaraz in that moment. It does raise an interesting issue on, you know, I mean, tennis is a weird, is weird anyway because there is an element of self-policing and self-refereeing. You know, you're the one, unlike in football with VAR, you are the one making challenges and that sort of thing. And in this situation, is there a moral inverted commas imperative on a player to fess up well is there well, that's my question I was watching with my brother and his girlfriend Millie and they were adamant that they would fess up in the moment they thought it was dastardly for Lorenzo Mazzetti who did very quickly sort of disappear to the back of the court and turn his back in a sort of don't ask me kind of way I, I would love to think that I would but serving for my first ATP title yeah and the problem is you can't change your mind no the, mm. the decision is made in that split second. Yeah, yeah. No one's ever going to go. Actually, you, do you know, know what? what? I was lying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thought about ago. it. No, it's weird. Like, yeah. actually, no, no, no. Like, I actually yeah. did do that. And I, I would trust my, you know, ten seconds after yes. the fact self. I, I can't promise that I would trust my in the split second self. But I think I, the guilt of it would. I oh, I'd, I'd be thinking about it 10 years later. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, like, if I was rational enough in that moment, I think, yes, you're going to lose this point, but if you do sneak yourself this point, you're going to be thinking about it oh, the rest yeah. of the match. I'd it's actually it, in your interest I'd, to just fess up. I'd be up. doing a death, deathbed confession, Charlie. Yeah, it would, like, it would it's, ruin the rest, the rest really, of my life, yeah. yeah. It's like how when teams don't kick the ball out, they never actually do anything with it, and I'm convinced there's this like low-level guilt because they're like, "Oh, if we do score, <laughs> there's going to be so we're going to get in so much trouble." So nothing ever happens. Yeah. Well, we we've solved that problem then, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. It's such an easy one. Sometimes we get really difficult yeah. things to try and solve, but that, and as Charlie said, it's been used. Yeah. At the next gen finals, I suppose would there be an issue of? at a slam outside courts I'm just thinking about that but you get you still get replays don't you I mean yeah. make that available and also just because you can't use something everywhere doesn't, doesn't mean you, mean you shouldn't use, use it, it somewhere yeah, when exactly. you can yeah. because that was true of Hawkeye as well you didn't yeah. have it on all the courts Indeed. that's an actually a, fair, a relatively recent development yeah. um, Alcaraz is now into the world's top five which 
Is that notable? I don't know, because it's felt inevitable for so long. But, but just mentioning the rankings, particularly on the men's side, I think perhaps highlights another reason why this portion of the season is feeling particularly strange, because the rankings are just in such a strange yeah. place. I mean, do you pay any attention to them at all at the moment? I mean... I mean, I suppose we're going to have to because we're going to be starting to talk about qualification for, for ATP finals and that kind of thing. Yeah. Although, obviously, that's L race and not L yes. rankings. Um, but, yeah, Djokovic, seven in the world. Medvedev, world number one. I feel like he's disappeared off the face mm. of the planet. I keep forgetting I that know. he exists. The it's defending all... US Open champion. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, it is a bit weird. I guess for Alcaraz, it's that's probably a really significant moment for him and does slightly answer the question I think you know you guys were talking about scheduling on one of the Q&A pods which I thought was an interesting discussion and just thinking about Alcaraz now you know why I'd be tempted if I were advising him I'm sure he'd be really keen to have my, my, my take on things you know, do, sorry Juan Carlos yeah, yeah, there's exactly. a new sheriff in yeah. town <laughs> but hear this guy out I mean, he's got some really interesting ideas but kind of wondering why he's playing in these events and I guess he would say you know, he's still young enough he wants to build up his ranking and all of that but I think he's good enough and I think it would speak to a certain confidence if he were slightly sacking off these post Wimbledon clay court mm. events I kind of feel he's a bit beyond them but well, he hasn't played that much has he this this season I mean he started his season not playing a warm up to the Australian Open uh, and then he obviously won Madrid and then he pulled out of Rome which was sort of part I think through injury part through I don't need to play Rome I've just yeah. won Madrid maybe I'm he's in been form. a bit burned yeah by, maybe and by I think that what sort of stopping his yeah. form hasn't been what it was since Madrid I mean he's played well in patches certain matches but haven't seen the sustained brilliance from him that we saw earlier on in the season and if you know his only tournaments since winning Madrid were Roland Garros and Wimbledon he didn't play a warm-up on grass either so maybe he just yeah. wants to get that kind of winning feeling back again and maybe even not being on the same surface it, it does still help with rhythm and all of that mm. going into the hardcore swing. He's playing Umag this week, though, isn't he? Yeah. Which is that does feel like a lot. But yeah, that feels a bit unnecessary. But <laughs> <laughs> that's where my consultancy role really yeah. would come into its own. Great not, for Umag. Not, not for me, Carlos. I think there's still time for him to listen to this pod and get True. in. True. Yeah. In touch, Imagine Charlie, if he did so. withdraw. <laughs> um, other notable things from Hamburg last week: Matt uh, Francisco Sarundolo. Yeah, he's, he's established himself as the better Sarundolo, I think, is what he's done. Uh, well, he won Borstad the week before and then went all the way to the semi-finals in Hamburg. So I think that was an eight-match winning streak and he beat um, Rude in Borstad, he beat Rublev in Hamburg, he's up into the top 25 in, in the world. He's, he's doing really well. I was impressed with him at Wimbledon when he played Nadal. Mm. Mm. on grass I, th- I, th- yeah. I thought his game stacked up pretty well there he's just and, really and, confident and Nadal was quite impressed with him wasn't mm, he he was and yeah. Nadal doesn't dish out praise easily no I mean Nadal, though Nadal often before he plays a match does talk up whoever he's playing <laughs> yes. as being you know the, the biggest threat that he's ever had to face Casper uh, Ruud defended his Gestard title last week I mean is Casper Ruud just going to win Gestard <laughs> Every year for the next he's, decade. He's very stark. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's very keen on Switzerland. Did you hear his post-match uh, 
interview during the trophy ceremony. He no, was, did he, he was, was he given a cow? He was no. He was like uh, Switzerland reminds me of Norway, except you pay lower taxes here. <laughs> Keep it light, Casper. Yeah. <laughs> the the main stadium, English Stad, is called. The Roy Emerson Arena. The Roy, it's, it gets me every yeah, year. Yeah, I saw this. He and was like, has a tennis academy in Switzerland. I know this because my friend at school went on a family holiday there. <laughs> really? And Roy Emerson was on it. <laughs> and they came back just talking about Roy. And it turned out that Roy was... The, the Roy the Emerson. Roy the great Emerson. Roy Emerson. The great Roy Emerson, yeah. I know, I saw this and was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I think he won the tournament. Four, well, I was going to say, presumably he must have uh, yeah. had a decent record there. Yeah. Um, that was a good final against mm. Berrettini. Quite, quite, in a way, I, I watched them as quite similar players in that final, and that they both were absolutely desperate to get the ball on their forehand and avoid mm. their backhands at all costs. Yeah. And it was quite an interesting sort of um, to and fro in that sense, I suppose. But. Berrettini really ran out of gas. I mean, he was he was all set to win that in straight sets. He'd only lost two points on serve in the whole second set, and then he got to the tie-break, and he lost his first three points on serve. Rube grabbed that tie-break, took it to a decider, and I thought Berrettini faded a little bit physically, and Rude was really strong in that third set. And that was Berrettini's first loss since since he came back from the hand surgery because of course he won back-to-back titles on yeah. grass had to pull out a Wimbledon because of the what positive Covid season. test I, I was going to say yeah I mean saying he, he ran out of gas sort of understandable I guess yeah. given he's played so little mm. and that Covid withdrawal was so unfortunate I mean it's interesting with those two as well because I think Berrettini was in Madrid they played last year and Berrettini won pretty comfortably yeah. and it feels like their place on the tour has yeah. shifted a little bit in that last year a lot to do with Berrettini's injuries but the kind of you know good enough to get to a Grand Slam final but still feels quite a way off from actually winning a Grand Slam final it, it feels like the next few weeks are going to be really important for Matteo Berrettini doesn't it because there is there that sort of very crescendoing build-up to the to the US Open where there's there's time enough that you can you can pace yourself and build up build up fitness which he which he obviously needs to do for for very understandable reasons and of course you know the US Open is where he had his yeah. breakthrough in 2018 and where he's had was it 2019 2019 I think mm. how was that only three years ago my god um yeah it, it just feels like feels important to me from Mate- and it I guess it feels important to Matteo Bertini as well because I think God, the last few weeks must have hurt. Yeah, well, months really. Yeah, that frustration. I mean, Wimbledon especially. Just having got back and being so in form and being probably that you know, I think most people were tipping him being the most realistic challenger for Djokovic. Mm. And yeah, he, having had the period out already, he beat Dominic Team in the semi-finals. Dominic Team reached a semi-final. If I had to. You know, summarise the last two weeks since Wimbledon. I think what Dominic Team has done has been the most significant mm. thing, and, and the, the thing that could mean the most. Yeah, I think yeah. probably the biggest headline. Maybe that's personal bias. I like him. I like his game. I miss having him at the top of the sport. But this is a—he's not back. Like we can definitely say he's not back because he lost pretty easily to Berrettini, mm. and that that exposed that he's still got some way to go. 
but he's in a much better place than he was in that press conference in, in Paris, Catherine, when he just lost to Hugo Delien. And he cut a really oh, sad dark, figure. It? And now he's won five of his last seven matches, quarterfinals in Borstad, semifinals in Gestad. He's beaten good players, Bautista Agu, Hugo Gaston. He's had some good wins and he's getting there. And I think that's, I think it's been a really significant two weeks for him. He needed this. And he did it as well, looking a bit more like Dominic yeah. Team. You know, hitting big backhands in final set tie breaks when yeah. he needs it, that sort of thing. And it's good to see. It's the first time in pretty much a year that I've not felt a little bit sad <laughs> watching Dominic Team, mm. which was a relief. I mean, you said, you know, you mentioned before, like, crazy Medvedev is the one-on-one and the reigning US Open champion. It's ma- it's crazy to think that Dominic Team. it's only two years ago since he won that US Open. I mean, that feels like the idea of him, you know, I still think it's a long way off. So the idea of him competing to be winning a, a Grand Slam, that just feels like another world. And, mm. I, and I'm so curious with him to know the extent to which he kind of, that was his holy grail and he did it and you know a bit like when Djokovic mm. won all the Grand Slams you know yeah. and then he had that sort of letdown. I it, just it's wonder it's very difficult to isolate the emotional from the physical exactly because exactly. both seemed to come at the same time there was that Australian Open which was the first slam after winning the US where he he said then didn't he that there had been he was an quite em- open about yeah. lack of motivation but then injuries started getting involved so it's Mm. it's very difficult and I think as as well as lack of motivation I I think he was still motivated what it was is his whole identity as a tennis player Mm. was trying to win that one slap you know be the guy who Mm. muscles in on on the tennis group and gets one and he did get one so it was kind of like well what am I now as a tennis player and of course injury has then really set him back he also did it in just the most bizarre circumstances the most have relatable you, have but you excruciating gone back and watched that tie break since it happened no because I find it like almost impossible it's to watch it's very triggering <laughs> no, it, it's the, it I is. think it's the most relatable elite level tennis I've ever watched because yeah. it's Pl- so played in silence yeah, yeah <laughs> it's 60 mile an hour sir. it's basically exactly what I would be doing and so there is something quite comforting about that but it's also you're kind of shielding your eyes. I, I should go back and rewatch it and see if it's as I've sort it's of like a COVID remembered it. Tennis horror movie, dystopian nightmare. Yeah, it is. I can't believe that was only two years ago. Mm. It feels like a different planet, mm. and I want you know. I wonder if there's a bit of that eerie. I, I mean, I don't know. Just what a weird couple of years for Dominic Team. Mm. It's. I mean, how much do you think as well? Like, I'm sure we speculated at the time how much there'd be an asterisk against that win almost two years on do we think that or, or do, do we just forget and a grand slam's a grand slam well I, I suppose there was the dual aspect wasn't there there was the the fact it was in covid times and there was no one in the crowd and that, that was also of course the the Novak Djokovic disqualification well that, that's more what I mean the fact that they're right the Djokovic I mean, Federer and Nadal weren't there I, I don't hold hold an asterisk over it I mean he won that tournament you know mm. I, I, in the same way I don't think of Naomi Osaka as having three slams or three and a half no, slams no. you know yeah. like, to me it's a slam yeah but I do understand how for, I agree with you there's no asterisk but I do understand how for him hmm. that one slam that he won it bears no relation to any other slam there's ever been or will hmm. ever be in terms of making that repeatable it 
that must be a strange yeah. thing. He, he yeah. was so like, I think if he'd come out of nowhere and won that slam, I might feel differently about it. The fact that okay, Osaka won it, she'd already won slams team. He'd already been in Grand Slam finals. Even that year. Even that he, year, he'd lost know, to Djokovic. He, he was absolutely the next yeah. mm. uh, peg off the rank. But, like, I, I wonder, though, psychologically, though, if as a way to help with motivation, you can almost, you know, you'd be saying to him, well, yes, you've won a Grand Slam, but mm. now the thing is to win a Grand Slam where Djokovic and or mm. Nadal are a factor in it. Because that feels, that would feel like the mm. natural next step. And that's a massive, massive next step. It's just saying that by the way about team going into the this year's US Open obviously having won it the last time he played it there's this stat going around that that's going to be true of three players Nadal hasn't played mm. the US Open since he won it in 2019 team hasn't played it since he won it in 2020 Medvedev is obviously the defending champion that's we've really got, interesting we've got three players on a seven match winning streak in New York who Bef- I'm going to ask this question now. I know it's impossible. Before the US hardcourt swing kicks off, who right now is the men's favourite for the US Open, assuming that, that Djokovic can't play, which it's looking increasingly like will be the case? Who on earth is the favourite for that title? I mean, Nadal? Yeah. I, I guess on, on, on balance, you'd have to say the guy who hasn't lost a Grand Slam match <laughs> yeah. in... What is it, 19 this year? You know, take away all the injuries and things. But almost every single one of those Grand Slam matches he's won has been improbable. <laughs> yeah, I it's know. It's just so... Well, it's, it's very misleading to say that, yeah. isn't it, that he's 19-0. and 0. I mean, it's not like previous years with Djokovic where he'd be coming in with that sort of record and you'd be saying, OK, this guy is unbeatable. Yeah. But I think off the back of that... I mean, the US Open, I was thinking this, that there have been five different winners in the last five US Opens. That's more different winners than in the last 19 Wimbledons, mm. which is pretty amazing. Wow. I mean, like even in normal, in inverted commas, times, it's, a, it's the zaniest, hardest-to-predict slam. And, you know, we've, I'm sure we've talked about that many times before, why that is, last one in the year, players are more fatigued, all of that. And there's, there's never been... I mean, Federer won five in a row, didn't he? But there's never been... None of the big three have ever quite had their claws into that slam mm. in the way that each of them have on others. But it, so it's always been this really hard to predict one, and yeah, you're right. I mean, even more so, even more so this time. It will be fascinating to see you know, what 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 sort of shape is Medvedev in. Yeah, and will that will we start to see? Will there be a hangover for the Russian players from this period that they've that they've just gone through? Or are I mean, they we'll, fresher? We just don't know. Exactly. I mean, we'll come on to talk about Andrei Rublev and Daria Kazakina. Um, shortly, but I could, given what we've seen from Andre Rublev this week, talking um, so candidly about the emotional impact of of the ban and being a Russian on tour at the moment, I could totally imagine there being, you know, that impacting him mm. tennis, or his tennis, or as you say, I could imagine the total opposite, yeah, you know, channeling it, and exactly, being they're fresh, fresh and, and they've got a defiance behind mm. them. Uh, is Bernarda Perra? playing anywhere this week because she is on for the WTA equivalent of the Casper Reed treble <laughs> well to me David might be picking her for the US Open she's doing a Beatrice Haddad Meyer <laughs> cleaning up on a, on a wind streak sorry David she's, not uh, here to defend yourself she's won Hamburg and Budapest back to back beat top seed Annette Contivate 6-2 6-4 in the Hamburg and, final and won them back to back without losing a set 
and qualified for Budapest. This Hello. is very David Law. 12 wins in a row, 24 sets in a row. What is it that Andy Roddick says? He'll take form over... Over experience. Mm. Well, she's got them both now. <laughs> she's trying to lure David in. <laughs> you know, I think you'd be crazy not to predict her to win the US Open. Yeah. Yeah. Um, doesn't matter that these are on clay. <laughs> I mean, I... It, it, uh, again, another impossible question. Does this mean anything? It's tough to say, isn't it? It's not, as you, it's not like Bernarda Perra hasn't been around... She beat Joe Conta at the Australian I was going to say, yeah, she, I associated her with yeah. sort of a six-month period where she played Joe Conta every week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and she beat Kerber once at a slam. She's she's someone I always look at when we're doing predictions in the early rounds of a slam. Who's Perra playing? <laughs> she might cause an upset. She doesn't normally, but she's done it like once or twice. And in fact, pretty much all the WTA winners in the last couple of weeks fall into that category Irina Camellia Begu beat Lucia Bronzetti yeah tricky to, to, <laughs> tricky to win the Palermo title and Petra Martic tricky won the Laus- she's Lausanne another one title. who I, I've now <laughs> taken myself out predictions because I found them too frazzly <laughs> but when I did she'd be someone always like 31 seed or something mm-hmm. you're like could she maybe get to a quarter final because she's sort of struggle her way into her last day mm. I mean as, as well I mean with Contivate as well she was someone who has played so little so you can definitely see the sense in why she is playing these events and why they might be quite beneficial to her mm. yeah I was, I was pleased to see her having a good week actually because yeah. she spoke at Wimbledon didn't she about Covid and I think in particular she got back to tennis too quickly after having COVID and that set her back and she wasn't in a good place. Um, she's, she's working with Torben Belts now and, you know, he's he's a good coach. So there's, it feels like as her ranking has gone up over the last few months, you know, she's number two in the world. She has been number two in the world. I feel like I've actually thought about her less and less. Yeah, but, but it's her another rankings, example of weird. But her ranking's rankings. gone up because of everything she did back mm. in the last season, especially indoors. So she, you know, she deserves that ranking, but it hasn't felt like she's been the number two or number three best player in the world. Mm. But she's the sort of player who I do associate with putting runs together at these sorts of events, where you sort of wonder what they're going to mean. And yeah, yeah. It, it sort of can she take that next step and do it in slams it feels like the same same question her at the bottom of the Wimbledon draw was a real like sort of turning the page over. <laughs> oh no that's it she, she is actually the number two <laughs> um, last bit of uh, tournaments from the last couple of weeks business to clear up and if only David were here because Maxime Cressy has gone and won a title ATP Newport last week He's done a thing, finally. <laughs> yeah, he just, he just needed grass to come around. Like, that mm, event feels made for him. Mm, yeah, the, the we have a we have a Greg Rosetsky super fan in our midst, so I imagine <laughs> you've watched a lot of Newports yeah. over the years. That was his spiritual home. No stranger to Greg at Newport. No stranger as well to the excellent feature that was on Prime I think wasn't it Mm. of him going back to the sort of scene of these great triumphs and talking us through the Hall of Fame and how it worked that was the best day of Greg's life Charlie (laughs) 
going back to Newport and reliving he, past successes. He was sort of walking through corridors and it would have pictures of him of yeah. each of the years he'd won it. Mm. He, Although apparently they have completely revamped um, the club at Newport, Rhode Island and replaced all of the grass courts. Greg talks about the fact that back in the day they were the... They were the most authentic grass courts in that they were they produced the worst bounces of, of you know right. most sort of old old school authentic yeah. grass courts and that's you know why he says he had so much success there. He was very good at navigating old school grass, whereas now apparently it's all true bounces right. and you know all these molly coddled yeah, young exactly. tennis players don't know how good they've got it. Maxime Cressy included. Could he do a thing on the uh, fast hard courts of the US Open? That was where I first saw him a few years ago. Maybe, maybe it was the COVID US Open. He played Sitsipas, mm. I think second round or something. And, you know, he, he did exactly what he always does. He brought it and he was a handful for Sitsipas. I, I think you wouldn't want to draw it, is, is all I can say. I think... Felix Ogelia-Seam said that at Wimbledon. Like That was a nightmare draw, particularly on the grass. But I think, you're right, it probably does apply to quick hard courts as well. I, I think he would be dangerous there. It feels like such a question of timing with a player like that. If, if he's, like, I feel like he might have burnt himself out a bit by the time the tournament starts. He's a future world number one, Charlie. He is, yeah. <laughs> but again, it's just a question of when. <laughs> he, just, he was very specific about not putting a timeline on that, though. So you're absolutely right, it is... It's all about timing for Maxime. Um, Andy Murray uh, lost out to Alexander Bublik in the quarterfinals of uh, Newport after getting a couple of good wins. He's he's a man on a mission, isn't he? He, is. he just wants. He, he's back into the top fifty. He his aim, his single-minded aim at the moment is to get himself a seeded position at the US Open and it feels like he's willing to show up and play pretty much anywhere that he can get those points I mean it is incredible obviously we know this about Murray but that he's willing to put himself out there in this way he's just so dedicated and you know a lot of people would be like this is massively beneath me I'm a three time Grand Slam champion legend of the sport Hall of Famer Uh, (laughs) but there he is you know slugging it out I mean you know and he may Clearly, it would be of a great benefit to him to be seated at the slams. No guarantee, you know, you can still get some pretty horrible draws. Still get draws. Maxime Cressy. Exactly. God, that would... Imagine that if would. he does get top 32 <laughs> seed and then gets a, a draw like that in the first round. You'd just be like, this is not Dominic fair. team. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope he does. Um, and, it w- you know, he's had some tough draws. He, he's had some ones that, I, you know, I think there are still... There have been some draws that he'd be annoyed with himself... I think he's probably still annoyed about losing to John Isner at Wimbledon. Exactly. I can imagine he's still got a face of fury about that. Like he did at the the Champions Parade. The Centre Court Centenary celebration where he still looked furious. (laughs) Still coming to terms with that. And you know, you're going to get a draw, even if you're seeded, you'll get a draw like John Isner in the third round rather than the second round. It's not, it doesn't insulate you Mm. massively. Um, But, you know, you can only applaud him for that dedication. Mm. And especially for him, I, I do always wonder what he must think. You know, him and Djokovic were neck and neck for so much of their careers, and then now Murray is scrabbling around trying to get himself seeded at a time where Djokovic has just won his 21st Grand Slam and is in that conversation. You know, like they were on a very mm. similar path for a long, long time. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. few other bits of news developments over the course of the last couple of weeks. We've had the... Uh, the pretty excellent news, really, that Serena Williams has entered both the big events in the lead-up to the US Open. She's entered both Canada and Cincinnati. Venus Williams uh, has entered Washington as well as Canada and Cincinnati. I mean, perhaps talking about the, the two of them in the same breath is, is not quite right, other than to say that you know having both of them back at a tournament is going to be fantastic. But... I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased that Serena... I, I still don't think she's going to win the US Open. But for for even to be in the realms of possibility, she had to make that decision to mm. play those two yeah. warm-up tournaments, I think. So I'm, I'm pleased to see, see that she's done that. Yeah, I mean, it is just going to be so interesting to see how... Because it's very different now, isn't it? You know, going into Wimbledon, as you say, yes, romantically, we might have thought maybe somehow she can do this but to do that having had the layoff she's had and with basically no lead in I know she played doubles at Eastbourne but that was always going to be a big ask at least as you say it gives her a chance uh, I mean you don't sound optimistic that's not an optimistic no, tone of voice I don't feel too optimistic I, mean, I have to say I don't but you know, when someone's won a Grand Slam pregnant <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah. they, they will prove you wrong yeah 
Yeah, I think when she's, I think when she's not playing, we've thought, oh, well, she's probably retired then. When she comes back to play, we shouldn't then be like, oh, well, she can win the US Open then. Like, there is a middle ground between... Mm. But the thing is, it's not a middle ground she's remotely interested in. She's not Andy Murray. I mean, no, I, I know Andy Murray wants to win slams, but he's prepared to lurk in the middle ground in the meantime. But I think for her to even have a chance of a bit of a run, even at the US Open, she needs some matches. You know, because Harmony Tam was a delight during... Wimbledon and proved to be a better player than I thought she was but let's be honest that was a good draw really Mm. considering who she could have got she can get a lot tougher players in the first round of the US Open and if she doesn't have any match practice at all she's gonna struggle so I think it's it's a great thing I think it if if Serena's playing I'll be watching and that's the the same for I think any tennis fan and that's that's great she's going to elevate and Venus these next few weeks before the US Open yeah, maybe we need to get better at just enjoying. I think that's, and I it think I did during that match that she mm. played yeah. against Harmony Tan. I, I readjusted my own take on her comeback really during that match, and I was just like, I'm just happy to be seeing her playing again. Mm. But that is a really hard one, and I think you're right. She doesn't have an interest in that middle ground, but there is a point at which, you know, Federer was there for a bit, where it kind of felt like, you know, in that sort of. 2013, 2014, 15, 16 period. Yes, he did. He did reach some San Finals in that time and looked like he he really could. But for a lot of the time, he was sort of nowhere near where he'd been. And you're tempted to be like, "What's what's the point?" Yeah, I'm sure there in the archives there are some uh, retiring Roger Federer pieces d- lurking. Well, I mean, yeah, some of us in. <laughs> May 2016 wrote a piece titled Why Roger Federer Will Never Win Another Grand Slam. <laughs> Obviously, not one of my best. <laughs> Your Kuzmova piece. Yeah, exactly. It's just, I mean, it was amazing because, yeah, within, what was it, eight months, he'd won the Australian Open. And you can imagine the glee with which the Federer fans were just atting me with this article. <laughs> he then added another one six months after that. So... Within just over a year, he'd added two more, me having said very confidently. And I'd, I'd like to say, you know, I'd like to blame it on an editor and say I was made to write that piece. I wasn't, just genuinely believed it. <laughs> I'm sure there is, th- I, I, I don't want to go back and verify, but I'm quite sure there are some, some podcasts around that time that did not age uh, particularly well. Um, I, I want to say as well, and not just because I'm trying to change the subject, but... Um, on you say asking before about who's the male, the favourite on the men's side now to win the US Open. Who, who would you put on the women's? I mean, is is it a Sviontek slam dunk, or does what happened at Wimbledon slightly change that? As it stands now, I think Sviontek's the favourite. I wouldn't take her over the field like mm. I would at Roland Garros and did at Roland Garros. I thought she was such a strong favourite because she's so good on clay and because. Maybe some of the rest of the field weren't quite so comfortable on clay. We'll obviously see what happens over the next few weeks leading in. Um, but I think there's more players that can push Fiontech on a hard court if they, if they play well. Um, I'm thinking, of course, about you know, some former champions at the US Open like Bianca Andreescu or Naomi Osaka, who I'm sure we'll come on to. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it's Fiontech, but more up for grabs than Roland Garros and Wimbledon doesn't 
doesn't make me doubt Sviontek because I just think that was such a surface related result I just think she's not comfortable on grass yet and hasn't found her feet and she was a little bit there for the taking whereas I think you know, we've seen her be brilliant on, on hard courts this season. You've got to remember, Charlie, how, how critical the balls are at the US yes, Open as well. Never forget the words of Craig Tyson. That is the answer, really. Whoever <laughs> can cope with those dastardly balls. <laughs> Why the Grand Slam was always beyond that part. <laughs> um, we know that Naomi Osaka can cope with those simply impossible tennis balls at the US Open. Um, some news, for, well a couple of bits of news actually from her over the course of the last week or so. She, she plans to play a full schedule pre-US Open starting in San Jose which I think is great to hear because she's somebody that's definitely followed the Serena-ish template of playing a pretty sparse schedule and that hasn't been working for her latterly so I, I do think she's to to play play more tennis to get back to where she was so I'm really pleased to hear that but she's also split with her long-standing coach Wim Fissett and also with her strength and conditioning coach Daniel Pohl although they had only been working together for for a couple of months um we don't we don't really know the circumstances surrounding this split so it's quite difficult for us to to speculate about what it means other than that they were one of those teams that seemed to have weathered a lot and seemed to have established a relationship that didn't depend on results, that just had a positivity to it, regardless of whether things were going well or not results-wise for Naomi Osaka, which is always something I I look for in coaching relationships. You know, that sort of knee joke, ah, I've had a couple of surprise losses, you know, split with the coach thing, always always worries me, uh, or sometimes worries me. Um yeah, they, they seem to have a very positive relationship and to know that that's over is just, I suppose, disconcerting for Naomi Osaka, who hasn't, I believe, Matt, said anything about this split on, on social media. We've heard about it from, from Winforset. Yeah, there have been no statements on Osaka's Instagram or Twitter about this, but just a very nice one from Winforset with, you know, pictures of their US Open triumph together and Australian Open triumph together um, yeah mid-season like this it, 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 is a, it, it is a curious one yeah I mean it is really hard to know and it's hard to know how that um, then affects her for the coming weeks and months and I think generally most observers of the sport really want her to be a force again you know especially losing Ash Barty which was you know, such a shame given where she was and I think people were kind of envisioning this Barty Osaka rivalry mm. and how exciting that would be obviously to lose Barty was was tough and then Osaka hasn't you know really been at her best for, for a little while so I think you just really hope she can get it together and isn't too unsettled by this there's also the element of Winforset now the being on the market yeah, yeah. available yeah. as a coach a very uh, a, a coach with a brilliant CV, a proven track record of winning slams, and somebody who personality-wise seems to mesh very well with players and have a positive energy about him. And you know that is, it's not quite a unicorn on the women's tour, but he is highly desirable mm. as a coach and would be an asset to a lot of players at the moment. I think. Yeah, I was I was looking through his his CV, coaching CV, US Open title with Kleisters, Wimbledon final with Lisicki. French Open final with Halep, 
Miami title and Wimbledon semis with Conta, Wimbledon title with Kerber, and the and the two Grand Crikey. Slam titles with Osaka that I've mentioned. So all, all of his Grand Slam winners, interestingly, had previously won slams. And there's a lot of one-time mm. Grand Slam champions maybe looking to get back to where they were. There's, well, it's Emma Raducanu. Right, yeah. Everyone's, the cogs were... <laughs> I, I presume Simon, yeah. Simon Briggs is writing that piece as we speak. <laughs> I think he's written it. He's <laughs> genuinely, he's genuinely really? written that. That Wimpersette would be good for Emma Raducanu. <laughs> well, I mean, he would, yeah. I think. It does feel like It's a, not a big leap, is it? No. I, I don't think there's there's that many players that I'd say, oh, no, that would be a bad idea, working with Wimpersette. He, you know, I I think he's a great coach. Mm. Um, but I, I could see that working. But... You know, yeah, I mean, uh, the Raducanu coaching situation is a kind of constant source of fascination, isn't it? G- given how it played out after she won the US Open. And you might be a bit over it by now if you're still working at the Telegraph. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah th- thankfully I don't have to <laughs> speculate. You haven't got so. an editor calling you every day saying, can we have another yeah. Raducanu coaching piece, please? Yeah. What about this guy? <laughs> so, yeah, ap- apologies, Simon, for <laughs> fanning those particular flames. I think... Um, Judy Murray had a column, I think it was in the Telegraph actually, wasn't it, about um, what she felt Emma Raducanu maybe needed above anything else was a, was a fitness trainer mm. who worked with her full time. I mean, that's been the issue really, hasn't mm. it? Adapting physically to the tour. You know, her body has broken down quite a lot this year and someone who just works directly with her, tailors a programme with a sort of long-term approach, I think maybe even more so than a tennis coach at the moment, might be what she needs. Well, if Tottenham's players revolt <laughs> against their current fitness coach, <laughs> whose nickname is the Marine, then maybe, maybe he can go and coach Radicard. Yeah, Charlie, Charlie's been in uh, on the uh, Tottenham Hotspur pre-season tour of Korea, um, which was the scene of the already, I think, famous... Um, training session which caused numerous players to well vomit to I can't think let's not, to, put, yeah. let's not put too yeah. a point on it yeah he's, he's this legendary figure and it was quite amazing seeing him just you know whipping these players into shape so I, I wish we just total tangent here I wish we saw more of that we, we hear players talk about training and how hard they've worked we're always hearing about how hard players work and I know that to be true I know how gruelling and physically demanding tennis is there's no way anybody's winning anything without going to dark places on a treadmill that I have never even dared think about um, but I I don't know if this is a, a weird kind of sadism but I sort of want to see it no it was amazing to see like it was like watching 14 year olds on a bleep test it was so again oh. very relatable that's what this the Spurs training was like and you guys were talking about how do you make the sport more yeah. marketable things like that would be amazing you know getting a glimpse Netflix it, it's, yeah well yeah maybe but it it's different hearing about it to actually seeing it I, I think um, yeah I mean I'm not you know I'm not saying let's see lots of players vomiting in the gym <laughs> but more vomiting please we get a bit of it on social media don't we we see Maria Zachary's reels from the gym but I don't know Anyway, uh, some other bits and bobs uh, from the last couple of weeks. We've had the announcement from the ATP that their China swing is cancelled, just like 
the WTA have cancelled all their events in China, but but not for reasons from the ATP relating to um, the safety and concerns around Peng Shui. They have cancelled the events for COVID reasons. So Shanghai, Beijing, Chengdu and Zhuhai are all gone from the ATP calendar. Uh, third consecutive year of, of cancellations for those events. They were last staged in 2019. Um, in parallel, six new ATP 250 events have been announced for those weeks in the calendar in September and October. They're all single-year licences just for this year in San Diego, Seoul, Tel Aviv, Florence, Gijon and Naples. Gijon. Oh, sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> I should have checked. Anyway... <laughs> What do we think of that? I mean, those all sound like nice destinations for the tour. Good to bring tennis to new places. In terms of the level of event, um, that's a big shift for the mm. ATP calendar. Yeah, you're losing a, a thousand with Shanghai, some five hundreds. Mm. Um, I think there's been some frustration that the ATP have not aligned with the WTA on this. You know, there's mm. a lot of talk, of course, about Tennis United and the ATP hasn't taken a stance over China. They're not playing there, but it's, as you said, for COVID reasons rather than any kind of solidarity with, mm. with the WTA tour. And I think there's been quite a lot of frustration about that. I mean, it's a sign as well, isn't it, that you sort of expect it, but... It, when, when you lose some events from an already crammed calendar, the thought isn't, well, can we rejig things and make better use of the time by having fewer events? It's right. <laughs> what can we replace them with straight away in a like-for-like like sort of way? Which, you know, this might be uh, an opportunity to pause for thought on, okay, well, how can we... You know, can we have more breaks? Yeah, in here and especially or, in that or, part or of the season. for them to go to the other tennis governing... But the, the T7. Um, As and we like go, to call them. Hey... But let's coordinate yeah. on this. Let's do something hashtag Tennis United with the calendar. But no, Gijon is a calling. <laughs> um, the ATP has also announced the launch of a multi-year education partnership with You Can Play, an organisation committed to furthering LGBTQ plus inclusion in sport. The collaboration aims to build on insights from a first ever LGBTQ plus survey completed by ATP players last season. Now, that was something that we found out about as a result, Matt, of you speaking to various players um, during the US Open last year, wasn't it? Yeah, Felix Auger-Aliassim was the one who mentioned it, that they were being, um, that there was this survey going round. Um, and yeah, they've sort of released, released the findings this week as well. Uh, the survey revealed that homophobic language is commonly used in tennis at rates consistent with other major sports. However, the survey also revealed general positive attitudes of players towards gay people, with very few players expressing homophobic attitudes, while 70% of, 75% of players reported having heard other players use homophobic slurs. The survey, survey identified social acceptance, conformity with social norms and banter as primary drivers of homophobic language within tennis, which... As much as that makes me just feel so tired, hearing banter is the reason for for casual narrow-mindedness and, and socially unacceptable behaviour and language, it it's a it's a lot more easily collect, corrected via education, hmm. isn't it, than actually 
deep-seated homophobic views, which it sounds like on the basis of this are aren't very prevalent um so yeah and educate you know it's it's not the whole solution tennis has so much to do and that can't be underestimated and we mustn't just nod to things like this and let ourselves feel complacent about it but it is something yeah it is i I remember in i did a piece in january 2019 and spoke to about 25 players on this very issue the fact there isn't has never really been an openly gay male player and trying to understand from them like what Matt did last summer you know just some of the issues around that and I was struck I mean most people I kind of expected everyone to be like yeah no I'd be very I don't have an issue but I think we forget a lot of people from some of the places that the players come from their attitudes towards homosexuality are very very different from ours I was sort of surprised by some of the kind of deep-seated prejudices and and I remember one player talking about like, you know, I'll, I'll, I would I would be okay with it, but they'd have to respect us as well. And mm. I felt like, why on why on earth would they not? You know, it just seemed like a really yeah. strange take. And then yeah, there was the lots of the, it may happen, but it's not done in a serious kind of way. And and, and interestingly, I remember speaking to a guy called Andy Brennan, who's an Australian footballer, soccer player, who came out, and he said actually, after he came out. He didn't really get any homophobic abuse. He might get the odd comment from someone in the dressing room, the reflex of sort of that homophobic banter in inverted commas, and then they'd almost correct themselves and be like, oh, you know, sorry. I think it's just so ingrained in, in locker rooms and across sports. And that does, that takes time. But, but you're right, that's less worrying than people saying they would actually be hostile yeah and that that really feeds into to this finding i think the atp survey and interview data indicated a strong fear of rejection isolation from others on tour and loneliness as being likely barriers to lgbtq plus players publicly disclosing their sexuality to others a majority of players that participated in the survey survey including 95 percent of players under the age of 31 were supportive of the atp taking action to combat homophobia which sounds good but also how were their players who 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 were the people saying Mm. that's kind of what yeah yeah and and what's the percentage for players over 31? Yeah, and yeah. slightly worrying, because that's, that's not an arbitrary age cut-off, no. is it? There's obviously some 32-year-olds in there with some yeah. attitudes that are skewing the results in a slightly worrying way. Which is what I found surprising when I spoke to players, because there were a couple who were just didn't sound as welcoming as I would have thought. A few things as well came out. I remember speaking to Brian Verhaley, who did come out but after he'd um, played he, he wasn't uh, openly gay whilst a player and he said one thing as well that we have to remember is you you kind of know if, if you are um, if you go public with something you are characterized as the gay player and you're sort of presented as the advocate you should have to be speaking about uh, LGBTQ plus rights um, and he said not everyone has an advocacy personality not everyone wants mm. to be that guy they, they, they might just want to yes they might want to be public but they're scared of being made to do things that they're not necessarily comfortable with and I think another thing that he said that, that's a consideration for some players is you know sport, tennis is such an individual sport and people will look for anything to kind of needle you with or 
you know, get get on top of you about. And so sometimes being private, you feel, is just a better way to be because you don't want to be, you don't want it to feel as though people are taking advantage of you in some way. I think what the results of this survey, what they get me thinking about is that comment that Nick Kyrgios made during Wimbledon about Sitsipas being soft. Mm-hmm. And look, that is... I'm not saying that that is a homophobic comment. I'm not saying that Nick Kyrgios is homophobic. But I do think that comment told us quite a lot about mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. attitude in the locker room. And it was, it was a comment that he made coupled with him saying, I'm really popular in the locker room, and Sitsipas isn't. And if we want to talk about why a player hasn't come out as gay on the ATP tour, that, I think, was probably quite an insight because as I said I'm not saying Nick Nick is homophobic or that he wouldn't be supportive but that kind of language is as you said at the time Catherine rooted in toxic masculinity and that creates an unsafe environment for a player to come out I've heard um, Adam Rippon the figure skater talk on a podcast before I'm just going to quote him here saying homophobia is rooted in misogyny especially in sport. It's based in this mentality that women are weaker than men and a man is tougher. And when you're in a sport, you want to never come across as weak or not tough. Being gay can be perceived as being feminine. There's a fear that someone won't think I'm strong enough or can handle pressure or they'll think less of me. That's a mentality which is hard to break and it's poisonous to all athletes. And I think that's really Mm. hit a nail on the head there, you know, as of course Adam Rippon would. This word soft, this sort of questioning of manhood, I suppose, probably does give an insight into maybe what the ATP locker room, and not just the ATP locker room, I'm sure a lot of sports locker rooms, especially male sports, are like. But that's also a real nail-on-the-head explanation of the differential that you have between women's tennis and Mm -hmm. men's tennis in terms of... Um, how comfortable an environment it is to be openly gay. Now, I'm not saying the, the women's tour is perfect in that regard, far from it, but there is a, a far longer and deeper tradition of openly gay female players um, and an acceptance thereof. And partly part of that is due to exceptional people like Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova exactly. who've... who've who have had advocacy personalities. But that's such a good point, isn't it? There is a gap between living in the closet and being, you know, the the flag bearer and the, the advocacy personality, which should just be, you know, in the words of Dario Kazakina this week in an extraordinary interview that she and Andre Rublev did with Russian journalist Vitya Kravchenko. She just wants to be able to live authentically and, and for for her that's tied to being Russian and um, the views on homosexuality in Russia um, rather than anything specifically to do with tennis but and, and I think that's right I think when we have this conversation or when, when this comes up quite often the response will be why are you trying to out a player why do you, why do you want someone to come out and that's not necessarily what we're doing what we're, what we're doing is kind of just asking why it hasn't happened and wanting it to be a safer space for the person when they are ready and I think findings like this indicate that at the moment probably isn't Mm. a fully safe space yet exactly and especially when you speak to people like Brian and they say how you know how much happier and how much lighter they are 
now that they are being their true self. You, you do just want it to be a safe environment. And I think as well with the women's tour, there are those role models. And I think that that's just such a big thing. And that, you know, whereas there would be, rightly or wrongly, there would be a huge fascination for a time anyway with an openly gay male player just because there hasn't been one. And they would suddenly be a lot of interest around them, you know, in a way that they wouldn't necessarily be used to. I mean, I think that interest, you know, I'm sure they would then be allowed to get on with their career. And But it's, it's a huge thing to, to ask someone to do. Um, Incidentally, Adam Rippon's free programme from the 2018 Pyeongchang <laughs> Olympics. Check it out on YouTube, folks. It we love Adam Rippon. an absolute joy. I mean, pretty much all of his programmes ever are an absolute joy, but that one is my personal favourite. Um, we've had the news this week that the big four are getting together for the Labour Cup. Mm. What's our level of excitement about this, folks? <laughs> well... I think we mustn't <laughs> Those ignore. Were weary <laughs> we mustn't ignore what happened with the Labour Cup last year. And what I mean is, Mary Carrillo, friend of the pod, didn't feel comfortable working that event because of how they were going to handle the allegations against Alexander Zverev. And the Labour Cup Twitter feed was blocking a lot of people who brought up the allegations. You know, it was it was really tainted. I think the Labour Cup last year, on top of some of the maybe issues we have with the event generally about what does it want to be you know is it an exhibition or is it trying to be a legitimate part of the calendar and it's gone more the way previously of trying to be part of the calendar trying to make matches that happen at the later labor cup part of head-to-heads trying to create a sort of ranking criteria for the top three to get in with this with the with the big four being there it has gone completely the other way in terms of this makes it more of an exhibition than ever because, you know, Federer hasn't played in over a year. If it was a serious competition where you want the best six players, Federer would not be there. But Nor would Andy Murray. Nor would Andy Murray. <laughs> I happen to think it should embrace the exhibition side of things mm. and I think it's really cool that they're all going to be there and I hope we get them all in a room together, talking. I hope we get content galore. Here, here. Because how many more times are they all going to be together? Not that much. I want to watch it's them an amazing all opportunity. courtside coaching Stefanos Tsitsipas. <laughs> That's what I want. Uh, Charlie, I Any feel, finger, you cross. <laughs> I, I feel like you always end up with the Labour Cup. Yeah, I know. I remember talking about the Labour Cup a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, I, and I, my view is probably similar to what it was then, which is that I think it is good that it, it can pull in casual fans it does do that and this really will and this really will you know Federer and Nadal playing doubles and it's just an amazing novelty and I think they they should embrace and lean into that and I think they probably will I mean you know any event that you know they so because it's so lopsided they'll be like but the last day you know matches count (laughs) quadruple to try and keep this like vaguely interesting it's not a serious thing once you start doing that but that's kind of okay who's going to be on the world team are we looking at Federer Nadal and Djokovic versus Isner Schwartzman I think Isner Schwartzman and Felix Felix are signed up so far it's it's lopsided in every respect isn't it (laughs) it's I mean, that was it, like, with no Del Potro as well, one of, you know, the, yeah. as if there weren't enough sad things about Del Potro not, not playing anymore. At the risk of rehashing old turf, do you know what would solve that problem? Women. Women. Yeah. Mm. Ah. <laughs> right, speaking of women, 
<laughs> the WTA Tour is in Warsaw this week. Iga Świątek is the top seed. Uh, at the weekend, she hosted the Świątek and Friends for Ukraine charity exhibition in Krakow. She was joined by Agnieszka Radwanska, Edlina Svitolina, Sergei Stokowski, uh, and the Polish junior Martin Pawelski. Um, Andrei Shevchenko, the footballer, was also there. The event raised over 400,000 euros for three organisations that have worked to provide relief and aid to Ukrainian children. United 24, UNICEF Polska and the Alina Svitolina Foundation. Um, the highlight was a set between Radvanska and Sviontek, who narrowly missed each other on the WTA Tour, which I hadn't quite processed yeah, the fact like that, they that. Didn't, they didn't coincide. Yeah, because... 2018 was the year Radvanska mm. retired, and that was the year Sviontek won Junior Wimbledon. Yeah, they, their, their paths never quite crossed. And Radvanska won the set 6-4. She'd been training for a few months for it. I, I, I caught a bit of Radvanska playing um, invitational doubles at Wimbledon, which, generally speaking, folks, is not <laughs> the highest level of competition. And she, she did. I mean, she you wouldn't out. have known she wasn't on tour. Yeah, for sure. She beat Mansoor Barami in a <laughs> <laughs> hard-fought set. <laughs> um, Shvontek signed the camera with the message: "Aga, come back on tour." I think everyone would endorse that, wouldn't they? Mm, yeah, variety. It's it's in. She was. I mean, yeah, she was. She was such a fun player to watch. Yeah, uh, the WTA is also in Prague this week. That's headlined by Annette Kontovate and Barbora Krochikova, and the ATP is in Atlanta with Riley Pelka, uh, Alex de Menor, Nick Kyrgios, Francis Tiafo, and John Isner. There's also Kitschbuhl, uh, where I I can only assume Dominic Team is playing. Yes, uh, he he was drawn to face Richard Gasquet in the first round, uh, but they've had withdrawals of Rude and Berrettini, and the whole draw has changed. And I no longer know who team is playing. No, I mean I guess that's when it does become a bit weird, does it? When you've got Atlanta, you know, yes, surely. Kitschbühl is always when it gets weird. Yeah. I, <laughs> like I, I feel so. I'm sure it's a lovely event. Honestly, lovely place to ski. It's just it just. Yeah, it feels weird in the context of tennis you know, more broadly. I mean, if you know, if instead of playing Barcelona in April, you were off playing a hardcore event you'd be, or a grass, you'd be like, "What yeah. are you doing?" Bonkers. <laughs> yeah, it's only at this time of the year where it, we, yeah. we accept it. Exactly. It's Why just, do I, we? I don't accept it. No. Okay. It. Okay. Uh, and then there's Umag, where uh, Alcaraz is the top seed, assuming he doesn't listen to Charlie's advice and withdraw. <laughs> Still think he might. Uh, <laughs> also, Yannick Sinema, uh, Sinner, Sebastian Baez, uh, Fabio Fanini, Lorenzo Musetti. Uh, and Holger Rune, who's on a six-match losing streak, hasn't won since beating Sitsipas in Paris, and he did an Instagram post about it this week, and it's the media's fault, folks. He is uh, really dead set on becoming the baddie of <laughs> men's tennis, isn't the heel. he? Yeah. Alienating... He's made an enemy of Casper Rude, which I don't know the man personally, but that feels like pretty good going. And the whole Rude family... Uh, and now sort of the whole media. I mean, I'm all for it. I think having those sort of villainous characters is great. <laughs> You're all for being blamed for the Abs- downfall yeah. <laughs> of Holgeruna's career. I'll hold my hands up. <laughs> but play- players who kind of come out and sort of shoot from the hip and say slightly odd things, 
I mean, that whole rude rune, I know it was weird, but I did quite enjoy it. Oh, yeah, it was right in the sweet spot of, of aggro, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. So if he wants to keep coming out this stuff... I mean, there's a Pelka as well, isn't there? Sort of media-hating oh. tennis players. Mm. I wonder how those, I wonder if those two would see eye to eye. Mm. <laughs> I've been watching the Athletics World Championships this week, and there's been quite a lot of, of media-hating from from a lot of the British athletes there as well, sort of a general jibing at the media. And I'm not saying the media are, are a perfect entity, There's, but it, it's a very big entity. And, mm. you know, obviously well, as members yeah. of the media, I just, I feel like there is just a bit of a trend. If the media are really bad and um, I only want to do things on my Instagram that I can totally control, that, you know, there's yeah. a bit of a disconnect no, that- in understanding of the role of the media and the fact that they are... M- you know, in the the best parts of it are to the benefit of, of athletes. Well, that's a really good point. I think that probably does speak to, for a lot of people, they do just want to curate their own image mm. and they don't want it sort of <laughs> tinkered with by those pesky journalists. I guess if it was someone who I cared a bit more about than Holger Rune, maybe I'd be less up for it. But <laughs> he feels oh. like, do you know what I mean? He, I don't think he's at this point anyway really shifting the We're trying, to, we're trying to win him over, Charlie. <laughs> I'm just baiting him. <laughs> Come on, what else you got? <laughs> and, and I think the, the role of the media probably brings us on just to talk a little bit more about Kasatkina and Rublev this week. I mean, just from a from a media point of view, it was it was an interesting absolutely interview you know i mean one of the most powerful insightful interviews i've seen and i think it, it, it came about because of you know the journalist you know new media clearly has a level of access and a relationship with those players that you know we don't have for example and i think on the one hand you saw the benefit of that mm. you know in terms of the just how how comfortable he made kasakina in particular feel so that she was able to speak so openly and, mm. and honestly and yeah just just the insight into her humanity and Rublev's humanity mm. and the taboo subjects that they took on there you know obviously Kasatkina I think had already come out as bi in, an, in another video but now talking about being in a relationship with a woman criticizing Russia very openly mm. calling it a war criticizing the LGBTQ rights there giving us an insight into what it's like being a Russian athlete at the moment and some of the options that they're considering in terms of switching nationality. They're considering that. They spoke about how they had given the option of playing mixed doubles with Ukrainian players at Wimbledon as a way of showing solidarity and trying to get around the ban. And I just felt like there were so many interesting aspects to this interview. And, of course, the the sort of main thing coming from it is just just their bravery and their, mm. their their courage to talk like that it, it, it was a level of access and insight that you mm. you don't see often and you know it, a lot of that was to do with those two players and yeah. how clearly engaged and engaging they both are i mean they both spoke so brilliantly um Kazakina in particular i think because i just i'd never heard that sort of thing from her from her before not in that much depth anyway I thought she was extraordinary actually I think we'll link to that interview in our show notes the the whole thing is on YouTube it's in Russian but it is it's subtitled and it's there's a lot to take in it's quite a watch yeah I mean that is obviously we're biased because we we work in in the media but 
that is when that sort of unfiltered access because it's that that's I think that's become so rare that that sort of just completely kind of honest unfiltered sit down where you you know it's, that's not really being mediated in any sort of way and again I'm biased but I just think everyone wins in that situation because you actually get to see the real person um, you know you're going to get so much more of an insight into both of them than you ever would through a kind of carefully controlled bland interview and uh, just good on them for, t- for pushing to do this and, and the bravery that, that that would have required and, and it's actually inter- reading back on the piece I mentioned about the lack of the environment and the lack of openly gay male players one of the players I spoke to said you have to remember in countries like Russia and you mentioned Russia you know, this is it's just not going to be acceptable and that's true of a lot of countries that play tennis you know culturally mm. it's just not an environment they feel that they can mm. they can be open about their sexuality I mean seeing Kasatkina break down in tears at the end of the interview just contemplating the idea that she might now not ever be able to go back to Russia and have a home there obviously partly because of the war and partly because the fact that she's come out as gay I mean that will stay with me for a long time mm. that, that was that was heartbreaking to watch yeah absolutely it is a tough watch but um, yeah I, I would recommend to anybody that they that they do so we'll link to it in our show notes um it's been a bit of a bumper episode, but David's not here, so I can, can do what I like. <laughs> um, any any other business, Charlie? We don't know when we'll next get to speak to you. Do you have any tennis hot takes or predictions that you'd like to throw into the mix while you've got the chance? Sure, I've got so I will have accumulated so many, and now you put me on the spot. All I can think about is Labour Cup. Will Roger Federer win, yeah, exactly. win any more slams? And, uh, yeah, reliving that take. I mean, I'll probably double down on that now and say I don't think he'll win. He'll win another one. Um, yeah, I would. Sort of, I think that's probably. That's well, it, but it felt like a safe bet there. Honestly, like in in, <laughs> in May 2016, I didn't think I was being especially controversial. It shows sort of how quickly things can change, and maybe the lesson from that is maybe Federer will come again. But I, uh, I don't think so. I think I think Djokovic will win that the race overall. That's that's my. That's where I am at the moment. L race. Yeah, but like Matt and. You, Catherine. I do just. I love. I love that race. Can't get enough of it. It does. It's sort of kept me gripped. Um, mm. And roll on the U.S. Open in that respect. Absolutely. Here, here. Roll on U.S. Open, especially as it's just clouded over and started to <laughs> rain where we are. So let's let's ditch London and head to New York. Absolutely, as soon as we possibly can. Uh, Charlie, thank you very much for joining us. It's. Uh, I mean, we miss David a bit, obviously, but it's uh, it's been great to have you. Uh, also great to have our mascots for this episode, whom I am looking at right now and just disappearing into a world of cute. It's Indigo and Junebug, seven-year-old sisters. They're best friends and have never been apart. They are Pitbull, Sharpay mixes. Uh, they all live in Tempe, Tempe, Arizona, Tempe, Tempe. No, Matt's, Matt's not wanting <laughs> to weigh nothing. in on that. It's a suburb of Phoenix, uh, and Indigo and Junebug's uh, owner is Julie Tharp, and they are honestly absolutely delightful. They look like they're wearing matching collars, I think, as well, which 
I love all of it. It's all just delightful. So thank you very much, Julie, for bringing Indigo and Junebug into our lives. Uh, David uh, has mascot Darwin. I've got Carter. Matt's got the dearly departed Gerald the cat. Billie Jean uh, has Billie Jean King and Ilana Kloss. We have Chris Albert Lee and Kyle Weingartner, who are our executive producers and top blokes. And Charlie, you're about to inadvertently join us for shout-outs. Yes. I hope you know what's required here. (laughs) Remind me. (laughs) Basically, try and think of a tennis player with the first name, nice easy one, Emma Wright in Halifax in the UK. I'll let you take this one, Charlie. I'll go with Emma Raducanu. Any rights? No. This is where it all goes wrong. I put people on the spot and it doesn't... There must be. There must be a right. I'm thinking an American player at some point. I can hear David will be screaming. There'll be some obscure (laughs) 90s player. Don't you remember him? He lost in the first round to Sampras at Wimbledon 93. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, we'll defer on the right because it is starting to rain harder. But Emma, thank you ever so much for your support hello we've also got Claire Richards in York not the Claire Richards from the band Steps wonder if it's the same person oh hello I don't think she's from York is she no I don't think she was no but maybe she's moved very well done we welcome those 90s pop references great show well Renee Richards yes 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 Um, Claire Liu Claire Curran yeah okay we've done Claire Proud Claire, thank you very much. Hello. And last one is Niall Abadir in Pennsylvania. Niall is the son of our predictions friend Essam oh, for the year. Oh, hello, uh, Niall. Niall, a very strong junior player, I understand. Oh. So maybe he, he maybe he's the tennis maybe Niall. Maybe he yeah. is to be the tennis Niall. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure there are any tennis. No. I think that spot is open for you, Niall. Uh, all I can there. think of is Niall Horan. Any other advice? No, that's I mean, what I was thinking. I had that as well. There's, look, there's football Niles. Niall Quinn. Niall Quinn, yeah. Well, that is actually the only one I can think <laughs> Niall of. Niall Ranger. Niall Ranger, oh. yeah. He's a bit disgraced yeah, though, isn't I think, he? Yeah, yeah. Niall John as a young young Spurs player. Okay, we've lost all of our <laughs> listenership. So uh, I'll, I'll wrap this up. Charlie, thanks ever so much for joining us. We'll be back next week when tennis will have continued to happen, as it always does. We'll speak to you then. Thanks for listening. We'll speak to you then. (laughs) A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.